All right, so we looked at John chapter 5, the beginning of the chapter. It talks about the Sabbath, and it talked about the Jews persecuting and prosecuting Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. Obviously, Jesus did not break the Sabbath. If he broke the Sabbath, he is an imperfect sacrifice and was a sinner and would not be able to have paid for our sins or to be able to provide us with a righteousness that is altogether perfect. And so we know his teaching about the Sabbath, which we saw in John 5, which says that the Sabbath has work on it that is different from other types of work, where you look at the Father and his creating, look at the creation work, and then there's the providence work. So he tells us there's an ordinary work for the six days, and there's the work of the Sabbath, which is the worship of God, the work for the assembly of the saints, there is the works of necessity, and there are works of mercy. And so those are the categories that we deal with. So those are the large overview pieces. So I want to walk through with you now the focus of the stuff we're supposed to do on the Sabbath, and that is the worship of God. So the handout you have has the second commandment, and I want to remind you the second commandment is essentially answering the question, how do you worship? The first commandment is, what do you worship, or who? The second commandment is answering the question of how do you worship. The third commandment is with what attitude. The fourth commandment is when. So we are considering that. We'll be focusing on the how and we'll be focusing on the when today. So let's look at what the larger catechism has for us in explaining the second commandment. Question 107, which is the second commandment? The second commandment is, You shall not make unto yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Notice in that text that the right worship of God is viewed as hating, sorry, the right worship of God is viewed as loving God, and the wrong worship of God is viewed as hating God. And so we have to understand that the love of God is doing what God commands for his glory in faith. And the hatred of God is missing any one of those things, not doing it for his glory, not doing it in faith, not doing what he's commanded And so, any of those things missing turns it into hate. And yet, also, look at the glory of the fact that when we worship God aright, it has a blessing to the thousandth generation, or to thousands of generations. And there is the curse, if we worship God wrongly, to the third and fourth generation. So the blessing dramatically overpowers the curse, and the curse is a real and terrifying thing. And so, we should be aware of these things, and know that the most practical thing we can do is be concerned for the right worship of God. There is nothing else you're going to do that's going to have a thousand generation type of effect. So, 108. What are the duties required in the second commandment? The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping. Pure and entire. All such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word. So, The receiving of religious worship is we receive the message from God and believe that it is true. The observing is the applying what we have been taught, and the keeping is guarding. Okay, So we get a message from heaven about how to worship God, we believe it. We apply that, that's the observation. 
and we keep it, we guard it, so that it is not in any way lost or polluted. And that's what immediately follows, pure and entire. We receive, observe, and keep. Pure and entire. Pure, we don't mix it with human invention. Entire, we don't lose any of it. All such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word. So the worship of God would be the elements of worship that God has given to us to commune with him. The religious ordinances would include things like, for example, church government. These would be things that have a symbolic significance or that have some sort of spiritual power, a religious power, like a claim of authority of a church. So those are the religious worship and ordinances. Then we have a list here of the elements, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration and receiving of the sacraments, church government and discipline, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God, and vowing unto him, as also the disapproving, detesting, opposing, all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it, and all monuments of idolatry. So, the positive thing we are to give attention to is prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. And you, you'll notice here, this list did not include psalm singing. Chapter 21 of the Confession references psalm singing. The Directory of Public Worship references psalm singing. And so the thanksgiving seems to be something that's incorporating psalm singing there. But the idea of psalm singing as a particular ordinance is important. So we have the singing of psalms, which is a fruit of the lips that's owed to God. And in the singing of psalms, we have a spiritual warfare. The praises of God are a two-edged sword in the hand of the saints. We see falsehood torn down. The psalms are spiritually powerful. They are destructive to the power of the demonic. They are also useful in building up, and we hear each other, and we are encouraged, and we edify each other. You teach each other as you sing the psalms. Prayer, when you call down God to give a blessing, or to give protection, or to destroy the enemy, and giving thanks to the Father based upon what He has provided through the mediation of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer, you'll remember, has the power to call down God's activity, not that we are controlling him as though we were somehow the masters of God, but rather God predestines our prayers and he promises to fulfill them, and so he glorifies himself in prayer by having us pray and he brings the blessing, he brings the power, he causes things to occur, and he plans for us to pray that he might answer it and bring about the effect. And so, we look at prayer as a powerful thing to bring blessing down, but also, there is a great power in prayer in redirecting our own souls. Because the thing about prayer is it involves a sort of meditation in itself, right? So, prayer is not meditation, but it involves meditation. It's more than meditation. But we focus our minds on God and communicating to God and in prayer, there is no listening. Prayer is not a two-way conversation. Prayer is us asking God for things. If you want to hear God, do not sit silent in prayer. The place to hear God is to open his Bible and to read what it says. 
and you get the words from God, that is how you get the other side of the conversation. In the singing of Psalms, you're speaking to God, but you're also able to hear his word, and you can hear it from each other. Prayer is not an ordinance wherein what we are doing is hearing from God. We are speaking to him. Now, the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, and the hearing of the word are focused upon the word coming from God. Prayer is about us praying to God according to what he has established in his word. We ask for things, and he gives. He gives to us of the inheritance. The Lord's Day should be filled principally with taking in the Word. That is the principal activity. To take in the Word is a feast day of the Word. The reading, preaching, and hearing of the Word. And so, I want to ask you to think about this. The Lord's Day, you obviously hear sermons. You obviously have your ordinary private worship and family worship, but do you seek to fill in the crevices of the day, looking to say, how can I maximize the taking in of the word on this day? So I would ask you to think about that. That's what this day is for. Okay? This day is a day to maximize the knowledge of God, to maximize taking in. You have other work, other duties on other days. You do ordinary dominion work. You're seeking to advance your outward estate and do all sorts of other good works. You seek to glorify God in everything you're doing throughout the whole of life. But this is a day that is to be dominated by the exercise of religious worship. And in particular, the Word and its transformative power on our souls. There is the administration and receiving of the sacraments. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. No other sacraments. Church government and discipline. These are things that are legitimate to be done on the Lord's Day. They are necessary. And it is often convenient to be able to use when the saints are assembled to be able to deal with certain elements. But when you find that it is difficult to keep up with it all, it is often necessary to move off government functions and discipline functions to other days. The ministry and the maintenance of the ministry. We find... For example, back in the Old Testament, that you know, butchering animals is a lot of work, especially if you're butchering them whole. And the priests and Levites were involved in the moving around of animals and their carcasses and the cutting up of these animals. And the, the sacrifice of the altar was not a lazy man's business. It was something that if you had to deal with a number of sacrifices being brought by people, in addition to the appointed ordinary sacrifices, there was sort of a constant physical activity. And this was not viewed as a profaning of the Sabbath, but instead as a part of the work of the ministry and the maintenance thereof. And so we find that there's a legitimacy to the services, the functions, the, the, the diaconal type work, the managing of the physical things on the Lord's Day for the assembly of the saints and for the functioning of the church and also the maintenance thereof. So we do not have giving. We don't pass a plate as a part of the public worship. It is not a part of the public worship, not an element of worship, but it is an appropriate thing to be done on the Sabbath. So, for example, you could give in that way and use some of that time, interact with a deacon, deal with something like that on the Lord's Day, but it is not a part of the public worship. Religious fasting is not an ordinary part of worship. It is an a, it is something that is to be done occasionally. It's an occasional element of worship. And so religious fasting and days of thanksgiving are both things that are to be taken and viewed as things that are done based upon particular providences that occur. And the same with swearing by the name of God and vowing unto him. 
So swearing by the name of God to other persons and vowing to God directly, these are things that are to be done occasionally as there is an occasion that calls for it. So the main things to focus on are prayer, psalm singing, the use of the word in reading, preaching, and hearing, focusing on meditating on the word, and the administration and receiving of the sacraments. These are the things that should take up most of that time. Now, when you move outside of the public assembly, that includes holy conference, which is talking about the word of God with each other. And so, these things are the focal points of what we are to positively spend our time on on the Sabbath. Now, there is a call to disapprove, detest, and oppose false worship. And so, if there were false worship that were to occur here, the appropriate thing to do is to seek to object to it and to also seek to quickly see it dealt with in a church council, even on the very local level. So, disapproving it, you don't participate. If you can't, if you don't have a lawful place to immediately stop it, you disapprove of it, you don't participate, there's a bad prayer, you don't say amen. There's a, you know, a psalm that's improperly being dealt with or some human invention song that's being dealt with, you don't sing it. If there's a concern in the teaching, you can raise a question or objection. And so, these are the types of disapproving that need to be done. And so, when you have the authority... You use lawful means to remove monuments of idolatry and to remove idolatry itself. So, 109, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The underlying part is sort of the emphasis that gives you the general principle. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. And so what follows is you know, making images or representations of any of the persons of the Trinity. Um, it furthermore communicates that we should not have any feigned deities or any representations of them. So if you find, for example, that you were to have some sort of a Buddha statue or whatever, you want to destroy that because that is a representation of a feigned deity. Right? You have anything that is a false god and is a representation of it. You want to remove things that are monuments of idolatry. We do not want to participate in any of the service belonging to false gods or their worship. So that means we don't want to worship them, but we also don't want to use the things, the elements of false worship, and to use them to try to worship the God of the Bible. We are to oppose superstitious devices and the corrupting of the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it. Superstitious devices would be things like a rabbit's foot or any other thing where you're seeking to somehow... You know, gain luck or use magic or to be able to divine what's going to occur in the future. That's true of anything, whether it's invented ourselves, taken up by something that other people have done, received by some tradition, no matter how ancient, or whether it's the custom of our own people, whether it's zealously done, even if it's done with good intention, that does not justify it. There is no pretense at all that would justify taking up invented worship. But then there's a list of simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing of worship and ordinances which God has appointed. And so simony is simply paying for gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, buying a church office or something like that. Uh, but these are the things that are, are forbidden there. So I'm going to move, go to page 2. And we have 110 emphasizes the reasons. And... 
I want to emphasize one thing here. You've heard me read this section multiple times in the last year. And so I want to emphasize one thing. God is jealous for his worship. He demands it. He has a right to it. And he is not happy with the giving of his worship or glory to anything else. And he is not happy with accepting some sort of service that men invent as opposed to the service that he commands. And so that jealousy for his worship. So let's move to the fourth commandment. We've thought about the importance of the right worship. And we've talked about a lot of things here to not do and a lot of kind of big, big principles. But notice again, what was the emphasis here? Prayer, psalm singing, reading the word, preaching the word, hearing the word, meditating on the word, the right use of the sacraments. These things, this is a small list of stuff that we are to use in purity. The simplicity of the new covenant is on purpose. God did not forget elements of worship that he wanted. The simplicity of the worship of God was given to give us a focus on what we are to take in. And the word is central there. Because God has made us as rational creatures in his image, and he has made it so that the word is designed to be able to transform us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it does. And so the taking in of the word is the principal thing. The understanding of the word, the believing of the word, the applying of the word, the word is the thing. And when we think about the sacraments, the sacraments themselves are a visible word. The bread and wine are symbols that represent the covenant. And what is the covenant but words? And baptism is a symbol that represents the covenant, which is words. And so we can understand the water being poured in the name of the Trinity when we understand the covenant it represents. And we understand the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine when we understand the covenant it represents. Apart from that, it can be viewed as simply washing, dirt away from the flesh, or the satisfying of some carnal hunger of the body. These are not what these symbols represent. They represent the gospel. They represent the covenant of grace. They represent to us the meaning of what is given to us in Scripture. And so they themselves even emphasize the word. So the fourth commandment tells us when to worship. So 115, what is the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. Okay, so what's holy? Holy means set apart. Set apart to what? Set apart to God, specifically for the service of his worship, for communing with him by the means he's appointed. The Sabbath is to be kept holy for that purpose, and the other six days are for our ordinary labor and recreation. And it says, do, and do all your work. We do all of our work on those six days. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work. You, notice that, you shall not do any work. And then it says you again. (coughs) You shall not do any work. Emphasis, you, and then it's all of those who are under your authority. Nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger that is within your gates. Now, anybody who's on your property, anybody who's under your authority, and the stranger that's within your gates, the gates are not principally about private property. 
The gates are about public government. The court of the state and the court of the church. And so the idea here is that the stranger who's in your land under the public jurisdiction is not to work. And so there is to be a careful guarding of the Sabbath, even by the civil magistrate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so we see in that text the reasoning from God's creating and resting. We also see God's blessing on the day, which means He has blessed it for our use. There's a blessing on it. There's good to us that comes in the use of it. And He's also hallowed it. He's made it a holy thing. We're commanded to keep the Sabbath holy, and God has made it holy. He has set it apart for Himself, and He tells us to use it for Him. And He promises a blessing in its usage. So what is that positive requirement then for the use of the Sabbath? 116. Answer. The fourth commandment requires of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as He has appointed in His Word. Okay, so sanctifying or keeping holy mean the same thing. Sanctifying or keeping holy mean the same thing. Sanctus is just Latin for holy. So the set times that he gives, what we find in Scripture is we find morning and evening every day. We find Sabbath that's supposed to be kept holy. We find in the Old Covenant, there was a giving of the three main pilgrimage feasts. There was also Yom Kippur, a required fast. There was also Purim. There was also given the Feast of Trumpets. We find the new moons. These days were all appointed. And they have all been ended and replaced with the new covenant Sabbath, which is the Lord's Day on the first day of the week. Except we have daily worship, morning and evening still, and we have the Lord's Day Sabbath. Those are the two things that remain of the time order that has been given to us and the working six days a week. So the explanation proceeds. What is that appointed time? Expressly one whole day in seven which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, and the first day of the week ever since, and so continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath and the New Testament called the Lord's Day. Page 3, 117. How is the Sabbath or the Lord's Day to be sanctified? The Sabbath or the Lord's Day is to be sanctified by, so here's how you keep it holy, a holy resting all the day. So people will say sometimes, you know, the Lord's Day is for resting. What you guys are doing doesn't sound very restful. <laughs> As though God made men for idleness. Is our purpose, we go, we work six days so we can have one day where we're in a catatonic state. One day to sleep in. One day to finally have the good life of being mesmerized by daytime television. No, we have a day that is given to us as a day of leisure and that day is the Lord's Day, and that leisure, when you have leisure, if you go into idleness and gaming and wasteful activity, you are using the leisure that all of your labor has bought for waste. We have this day so that even slaves have a day off. And it makes it so that every man in every station has the life of leisure one day a week. That he might study, 
and be educated, be edified, to receive the teaching from the Lord, and to have a day to be able to speak the truth and to serve others in righteousness and in holiness, and to be useful in the assembly of the saints. The Lord's day is a day for the good life of activity of service and of contemplation. And so we serve others in holiness in the church, and we seek to maximize the time that we can commune with the Lord in the Lord's day. That's the holy resting. It's a rest that is holy unto God. We rest from our ordinary work in order to focus on these things. The holy rest all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. And making it our delight to spend the whole time, except so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship. The public and private exercises of God's worship. So the public worship, you want to know the ordinances for that. And private worship is made up of two things. Secret worship of the individual by himself and family worship. And family worship can incorporate guests when there's a lawful hospitality event, when you're not just trying to like usurp the church. Right? You, could, you could go, yeah, we're having private hospitality, and our goal is to kind of create a church inside of a church. That is unlawful to try to use family worship for a divisive purpose. But if you use family worship to encourage people in godliness and to have hospitality and to incorporate people into your family worship for that, that is a righteous thing. And to use it to seek to increase the unity of the saints. And so, a day is to be taken up in public and private exercises of God's worship. Public and private exercises of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business, that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. Okay? Foresight, diligence, and moderation are to be used to dispose of and to dispatch our worldly business. So your goal is to free the day. 118. Why is the charge of keeping the Sabbath more especially directed to governors of families and other superiors? The charge of keeping the Sabbath is more especially directed to governors of families and other superiors because they are bound not only to keep it themselves, but to see that it be observed by all those that are under their charge and because they are prone oft times to hinder them by employments of their own. There's a danger when you are a father, when you are a mother, when you are an employer, when you are a magistrate, when you are even a church officer of causing people to waste their time as opposed to using the Sabbath properly. And so good government, in part, is about helping to order things and manage things to make sure that the Sabbath is able to be free for the worship of God. Also, it is so much easier to keep the Sabbath in little units of holy society than it is just by yourself. When you have other people that want to talk to you about the things of God and to have godly conversation, a holy conference, and to encourage you, and you have other people that you can talk to about the things of God, when you read by yourself and you take in the truth of God, it's a glorious thing. But you know it is more glorious when you can share it. And so when we are apart and communing 
privately with God and taking truth from his word and storing it up in our hearts, one of the ways we fortify it in our own minds so that we remember it better is then when we get back together again. If we have a, a fellowship meal or something like that, we share the treasures that we have stored up and we display the pieces of wisdom that have been given to us by the sovereign illumination of God. And in doing so, we remind ourselves, you who teach, do you not teach yourself? And you also teach others. And so there is a unifying effect and there is a maturing effect and the opportunity to display in private the gifting of teaching. One nineteen. What are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? The sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omissions of the duties required, all careless, negligent, and unprofitable performing of them, and being weary of them. All profaning the day by idleness and doing that which is in itself sinful, and by all needless works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. Until you go to the grave, you will have to fight that intruding thoughts about things that are not appropriate for the Sabbath. But I can remember now with, I don't know, a decade or whatever it is of, of Sabbath keeping, how much easier it is to keep the Sabbath contained and to avoid the intrusion of those things than it was when I first started the process. And so there is a habit of thought, there's a way in which you become more and more able to focus and to be able to avoid those intruding thoughts and to be able to quickly correct yourself. And being around other people who are committed to this as well, helping the conversation to be steered to useful things. You know, we often find that we have immature believers or unbelievers that are, that are around. And our goal is not to you know, always slap their hand every time they mention something that we wouldn't want to necessarily talk about on the Sabbath. The goal is to seek to pleasantly and helpfully bear with their weakness and help to pull them along and to seek to see if you can take the things that they bring up and to steer them to the things of God, to steer the conversation, to connect to higher things, to cause the conversation about whatever it is to point to the things of God on that day. And so we think about how we can serve our brothers in this. There are many things that I study that I would love to talk about but I don't necessarily have a person that would be profitable to bring up to them at this time. Or there's not time to do it in. And so we shouldn't just seek to simply please ourselves at whatever doctrine we wish to talk about, but to think also about what's helpful to our brother. So how can we talk to people? How can we pull them along? How can we bear with their burdens? How can we minister to them? How can we be useful to them? How can we speak things that are useful? And so we avoid idleness by being useful. We avoid thoughts and words about worldly employments and recreations. And we seek to make sure that as we're talking about the things of God, that we don't do it in an unprofitable way, we don't do it in a wearisome way, we don't do it in a careless, negligent way. We, we carefully seek to, with zeal, discuss these things. 120, what are the reasons annexed to the fourth commandment the more to enforce it? Okay, well, God owns all time, and he makes a special claim on the Lord's Day. God has declared it to be a holy day and he's given a blessing upon it. And he gave us his own example. And also in Deuteronomy 5, what does he do? He tells us that because he's redeemed us, not only is it because he's created us, but because he's redeemed us, that there's a day that is for rest. Let's go to page 4. 
But why is the word remember set in the beginning of the fourth commandment? The word remember is set in the beginning of the fourth commandment partly because of the great benefit of remembering it. We being thereby helped in our preparation to keep it and in keeping it better to keep all the rest of the commandments. Notice that little phrase. And in keeping it better to keep all the rest of the commandments. How is that true? As we remember the Lord's Day, it pushes us to budget our time better. If any of you ever, you know, do you remember when you first started tithing and you realized, I have to keep a budget now. I have to know how much I'm actually making. So you go, okay, now I know how much a tenth is. And you go, okay, great, I'm doing that. And you go, the other other 90% is not as big as I had wished or had deluded myself into believing. And the things I am spending it on are not as useful as I had deluded myself into believing. And as you start to track what you're doing with the other 90%, you start to realize the limitedness of your finances. And you start to use it better to glorify God in a better way. The Lord requires, he makes Calvinists become accountants by the tithe. And then he also makes you project managers with the Sabbath because he makes you count your time. And so you go, ah, I'm an accountant now. I'm a project manager now. I've got to track the money. I've got to track my time. I don't have enough of either. Maybe I just want to sleep. And that works for a couple of days. And so, by keeping the Sabbath, it makes you track your time and redeem the time better and redeem the use of your money better. And with the Sabbath, as you remember it, it helps you to continue in a thankful remembrance of the two great benefits of creation and redemption, which contain a short abridgment of religion. What a profound little half sentence. Creation and redemption contain an abridgment of religion. God is the creator, and God is the redeemer. He is Lord, he is powerful, he makes from nothing, and he is sovereign over our salvation. And so as we think about the Lord's Day, we remember that the first Sabbath, the old covenant Sabbath, was given to remember the rest after creating, and the new covenant Sabbath is about resting in Christ and looking forward, that we have it at the beginning of the week, and we look forward, working out of a condition of rest. And before, there was a looking forward to Christ to come. And so we have creation and redemption being remembered there. And partly because we are very ready to forget it. Remember the Sabbath day. We are ready to forget it. Why? For that there is less light of nature for it. What in nature makes us go, oh, seven-day week? You You got the sun for years. You've got the moon for months. You might have the ability to determine seasons in part by looking at the, the sky and the stars that are around and which ones you see when. And that helps you with the sun and the year process. But what about a week? Where does a week come from? It's not a natural thing. There's no natural thing to find the week from. The week is purely a positive law of God. And so in the week, we realize that we don't have something there to just remind us about it, except for the Word of God. And in that week, in that seven days, the other six days we can drown out in our mind the Sabbath. And so if we remember it in the week, it helps us to number our days, as we're commanded to do. And there are many worldly businesses that come between Sabbath and Sabbath. We too often take off our minds from thinking of the Sabbath either to prepare for it or to sanctify it. And it's interesting, you know, you, you look at the, the scriptures and they talk about preparation days before Sabbaths. 
We have an ordinary day. It's Saturday. Why do we have Saturday off? We have Saturday off because it became a thing to say, okay, you have the Lord's Day, but we need a preparation day. That was sort of the, the origin of pushing for that, to make it so that employers would give more space for people to prepare for the Sabbath. And so you have this discussion about that. Now, I'm not saying that should be established by law or anything. But I'm saying that's a cultural reality. And now, the weekend is all about recreation. In the scriptures, you find days of preparation before Sabbaths. And that Satan, with his instruments, much labor to blot out the glory and even the memory of the Sabbath to bring in all irreligion and impiety. Now, you talk now about the idea of you know, the Sabbath, and overwhelmingly people have not thought about it, not really heard about it. They think that it's you know, the Jewish Sabbath, the Lord's Day is not talked about much. The idea of establishing in law the closure of businesses on Sundays, this was very common until very recently. Every state in the Union had blue laws, is what they were called. They were, they were, they were laws to stop business on the Lord's Day. And so our law order has been overturned from a somewhat Christian law order to one of irreligion and impiety overwhelmingly now. So what we need to do is work together as a community, as a covenant community, to carefully guard that order amongst ourselves and to seek to help each other to be able to have it. So the Confession of Faith takes these same doctrines. that We just read through the Catechism, and it talks about these ideas of how to worship and when to worship. And chapter 21 puts them together because... Religious worship and the Sabbath there are so tightly pulled together. And what you will find is that teachers who do not accept the Sabbath will have a very hard time even understanding the regulated principle of worship. Why? Because these two things are tightly interwoven. The idea of holy time, time that's devoted to the worship of God and nothing else, is what makes it so that you start to understand that the elements of worship are the specific things to be done in that holy time. If you don't have an idea of holy time, then you just kind of go, well, all of life is worship, and you make all of life worship in the same sense that the devoted time is worship. Now, I can certainly say all of life is worship in the sense that we should spend our whole lives serving God and glorifying Him. Every moment of it. But there is a specific time, a set-apart time, that is for communing with God by the elements he has appointed and nothing else. So the chapter 21 of the confession, the regulated principle and the Sabbath day tend to get thrown out together. They do, neither survives very long without the other. Chapter 21, section 1. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. That second part of section 1 is a magnificent explanation of the regular principle of worship. 
And you think about it. Even if you have a belief in God, if he doesn't tell you how to serve him, what are you going to do? What worship will you offer? Two, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but of Christ alone. That idea that our worship is not acceptable, our worship is abominable to God, without a mediator, and without the right mediator. Because only Christ provides us with a covering of righteousness, whereby our worship is acceptable. Three, prayer with thanksgiving, being a special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. We have the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians teaching us about the uselessness of speaking in unknown tongues and how without edification, how words are vain. And furthermore, that your brother cannot say amen unless he knows what you've prayed. Because it's sin to just say amen without knowing what your brother has prayed. And so the ability to Speak words that are understood. Four, prayers to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned this sin unto death. So, false prophets. Now, praying for things lawful. I don't have time to talk much about that, but I would encourage you to study the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer in the Larger Catechism magnificently organizes. The Lord's Prayer is to prayer what the Ten Commandments are to the Law of God. The Law of God gives us a summary of all of our duties. The Lord's Prayer gives us a summary of all acceptable petitions. And so every petition that is lawful fits under the category of one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Study what the larger catechism has to say about it. Its proof texts are excellent. Go to page 5. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word, in obedience unto God, with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Okay, That phrase, ordinary religious worship of God. The ordinary religious worship of God is to be done ordinarily. Which means, if we have a Lord's Day assembly, we would expect to have these components of worship. Now then, the part I've highlighted in orange, these are the occasional elements of worship. Besides religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon special occasions. Okay? Religious oaths, when do you swear? Religious vows, when do you swear to God directly? Solemn fastings, so you're calling for a fast, basically either because there's some great problem that has arisen or because you're seeking a particular blessing from God. And thanksgiving for particular occasions. 
which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. So again, we have that list. Think about that list of the positive things to focus on in the Lord's Day and go look at, for example, what it says in the second commandment and the positive things to do there. And you'll find the overlap. Six, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth. Think about how much that was emphasized in John 4 in terms of what the new covenant has. Right, The old covenant has special places, special objects, the direction that you pray in. The new covenant does not. The removal of those things is a hallmark of the new covenant. Your worship is not made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or toward which it is directed, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, also daily. So, more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God, by his word or providence, calls thereunto. Okay? By his word, he calls us to worship on the Lord's Day. In Providence, if there's a particular event that makes us we have to give thanks, or what we should call a fast, there would be a legitimate basis for calling an assembly. Seven. As it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in His Word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Okay? Think about that. In general, it's obvious that some due proportion of time should be given for the worship of God. So tell me, from your reasonings in your heart, from your sitting around and thinking hard about it, from your observing the world and all things in it, what proportion should you give to God? What you say? You didn't come up with one in seven by sitting around and just thinking about it. You didn't come up with one in seven by just staring at evergreen trees. None of those things popped into your mind. It took a positive, perpetual, and moral commandment of God for you to know what proportion was legitimate. God has the right to just say, worship me until you starve. You can do that. Worship me until you die from lack of sleep. What he doesn't, what does he do? He gives to us an ordered time that is designed where we're designed and it's designed for our good. He has designed the creation and he has designed his law to fit together for his glory and our good. And so one day in seven was designed by God for a blessing to us. That is the proportion he has assigned in his law. That is the moral element of the law. And the ceremonial piece is the day, which day it is. And he has changed the day from the last to the first. Eight. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord. I'm sorry, I skipped something. Forgive me. One day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week. Which in scripture is called the Lord's Day. And is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Eight. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord. When men after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own 
works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, those who take the Westminster Standard seriously and take seriously the idea of swearing to uphold the doctrinal system, you can't take the Westminster Standard seriously and tear this out of the heart. The, the Sabbath and proper worship, this is how you mature Christians. This is a, they fit together piece. You lose one, you lose both. And this is at the heart of how a church functions and how Christians mature. The way we worship dramatically affects our perception of God and the elements of worship are going to affect our edification. If you read some poem as opposed to what God has revealed in his word, the effect is going to be different on the soul. And whereas a human poem might have error, the word of God does not. And so the careful preaching of the word is to be explaining what the word actually teaches. And it's to be examined by those who listen. So our directory of worship captures for us how the Lord's Day is to be sanctified as well. It's addressed again. Another one of these. We have the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, the confession. They all talk about the sanctification of the Lord's Day and right worship. So the directory of worship says this, of the sanctification of the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day ought to be so remembered beforehand as that all worldly business of our ordinary callings may be so ordered and so timely and seasonably laid aside as they may not be impediments to the due sanctifying of the day when it comes. Page 6. The whole day is to be celebrated as holy to the Lord, both in public and private, as being the Christian Sabbath. Isn't it amazing how consistent the messaging is across these standards? A Christian Sabbath, the whole day. Take your worldly employments and recreations and put them aside. To which end it is requisite that there be a holy cessation or resting all that day from all unnecessary labors and an abstaining not only from all sports and pastimes but also from all worldly words and thoughts. This, our goal is to remove everything that makes it so that we're, we're trading the glorious word of God for other stuff. This day is devoted to taking in the word of God. That the diet on that day be so ordered that neither servants be unnecessarily detained from the public worship of God, nor any other person hindered from the sanctifying that day. That there be private preparations of every person and family by prayer for themselves and for God's assistance of the minister and for a blessing upon his ministry. And so, especially in the private worship on Saturday and your, your family worship on Saturday, prepare yourselves and prepare your houses. And then you have morning worship on the Lord's Day to prepare yourself privately before you come to the public worship. To prepare yourself. And I would ask you, as you're advised in the Directory of Public Worship, to please pray for me and my preparations and my teaching, that God might bless it, it will be good for you. 
and by such other holy exercises as may further dispose them to a more comfortable communion with God in his public ordinances. Right, the, the private portion helping you to be able to use the public better. Now, there's a directory of family worship that I knew I wouldn't have time to go into. But it has some really good stuff on there, too. The Westminster Assembly thought a lot about private worship, family worship, public worship, and the Sabbath. Because they viewed those as the heartbeat of the Christian life. Those were the set times that made it so that the Christian life had a rhythm to it. That all the people meet so timely for public worship that the whole congregation may be present at the beginning and with one heart solemnly join together in all parts of the public worship and not depart till after the blessing. That what time is vacant between or after the solemn meetings of the congregation. Notice the between. Right? The, when, when, when you look at the sections on days of thanksgiving or fasting, it explicitly says that there are two services. But here in this section, there is the between. So there's an implicit morning and evening, and then there's the time after the evening service. Okay, so the time is vacant between or after the solemn meetings of the congregation in public, be spent in reading, meditation, repetition of sermons, especially by calling their families to an account of what they've heard, and catechizing of them. Holy conferences. Now, holy conferences is, there's a section in the, in the directory of family worship that talks about mutual edification, right? Discussing stuff in a mutually edifying way. And holy conference gets talked about there. So this idea of talking about the things of God. Prayer for a blessing upon the public ordinances. Singing of psalms. Visiting the sick. Relieving the poor. And such like duties of piety, charity, and mercy. Accounting the Sabbath a delight. So I'd ask you that last section there. I'm asking you, take the pen you've got in your hand and star it, mark it. Think about that last paragraph. As the what you do with the time between the services or after. Because that is a great capturing in summation of how to use the day. And so when we're fellowshipping together, when we're enjoying a meal together, we should be making sure we're trying to be in holy conference where we discuss the things of God. We're praying together. We might break out in song. You know what? I would be, it would be a joyful thing if all of a sudden we're eating and somebody breaks out into a psalm. Psalm 128 seems like a good one if you're at a table. You could do that. There's other ones too. Somebody breaks out into a psalm and you'll see who are the people that have memorized it already and who are the ones that have it. I'm pretty bad at memorizing psalms, so I'll be frantically looking for my psalter. But the rest of you might perform better. So that would be a great way for you to beat me and to show that you have more psalms memorized than me. But that is a way of doing that. So what we've talked through here is how to think about right worship and how to think about the use of holy time. And I hope that that has been a blessing to you to think about this more deeply, about how to apply it, and the careful guarding of it, and how some things get repeated over and over again in these documents for us to think about how to properly use the time. So I'm open for comments, questions, and objections from the voting members as with speaking rights.